0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Let me pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Spirit, One God, united. Thank you for your work in us. Lord, I am mindful that at this very moment, there are thousands, tens of thousands of pastors standing to preach to tens of thousands of churches. We are grateful to stand united with them in this proclamation of this great message of what you have done in us. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that you would be at work here this morning and around the world in all of your church to give us clear vision of you and to stir our hearts with your scriptures that we might be changed. Thank you, Lord. We trust you and ask you to be at work here for your glory and for our great benefit. Amen. On average, war killed 100 people per hour for the entire 20th century. On average. Every hour for a century, 100 people. Do the math there and weep. That's the claim of a recent book on 20th century moral history. And I have no idea how you would go about verifying that number. I don't know how anybody could count every man, woman, and child that's died from combat and starvation and disease and exposure in every war and conflict and feud of the last hundred years. I have no idea how you'd count that. Nevertheless, the general point still stands. Last century was a collective atrocity. And on another front, the U.S. divorce rate still hovers somewhere near 50%. The world could use some peace. People, families could use some peace. And the good news is that peace has come. That's what we're going to see this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Peace has come. Now, as we've been working through the book of Ephesians, I have several times pointed out the general structure of the book. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are going to tell us and command us and exhort us in the way we are to walk, the way we are to live, now that we have been made objects of God's great grace, objects of his mercy, we're going to come to those chapters beginning around the turn of the year. But for now, up until then, we've been working through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we have been undergoing, prayerfully, I'm praying that we have been undergoing a significant heart and mind renovation. That there's been something going on in us as he works through these chapters, talking about our being, who we are, what God has done in us and for us. Chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 have emphasized this marvelous work of God on our behalf. He has brought us back to life. He has sealed us with His Spirit. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He has done stunning work in us. And then last week we saw a bit of a shift. Just a tad. Paul still latched on to this broad concept of being. But last week in verses 11 to 13, he moved just a little bit. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he's talking about particular individuals and how we get saved. And then he moves just a little bit in 11 and following to groups. He steps back and gets a little more big picture. And he's talking about two groups and how these groups interact with one another. So he's still got the same general idea going on, being. But he's talking now a little bit bigger picture. Now, there is still individual application because what's true of these groups is also true of the individuals in the groups. But there's a slightly different focus here. These two groups in 11 to 13 were the Jews before Christ and the Gentiles before Christ. And to sum it all up, these two groups were at odds with one another. Pastor Jason unpacked that a little bit last week. Brief summary. Gentiles before Christ were far off They were far off and away from the hope of Israel, the promise of Israel, the covenants and the God of Israel. They were without hope and without God in this world, but, verse 13, God brought those far off ones near by way of the cross. And that's where our passage for this morning picks up in verse 14. It's as if it says, okay, Paul. So, okay, God brought the far off ones near by way of the cross, but exactly how did that happen? Can you expand on that just a little bit? That's what's going to happen here this morning. Verses 14 to 18, Paul's going to expand on that concept of bringing far off ones near. And the point of this passage and of this sermon is really pretty brief. Here it is. Rejoice. Christ is peace. Rejoice. Christ is peace. He alone is the answer to the world's quest for For peace. If you look around and you see devastation and destruction. And you look into relationships and see alienation and conflict. There is an answer. Christ is peace. As we consider what's told us here. Joy. Rejoicing should rise up in each redeemed heart as we look at this. And we see what's happened. Joy should rise up and dominate your affections. Rejoice. Rejoice. Christ is peace. Peace has come. And we should be filled with joy, not just because we acknowledge an abstract concept of peace as being a good thing and as it being available to us, so yay. Not just that. We should rejoice because of what peace does. Peace eliminates barriers that keep us away from Things we were made for. Think about this. You were made for community with people. But alienation and conflict rips that away from you and it leaves you in isolation. Well, rejoice. Those barriers can and have been overcome. Community can be yours again. Healthy, fruitful relationships with other people are available to you again, relationships that we all need, even for the introverts among us, like me. It is possible. But that's at the half of it. Yes, we were made for, in part, community. And we will rejoice when we see Christ making peace and bringing us back to other people, yes. But far beyond that, we were made for communing with God. As an old saint once said, O oh God, you have formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their homes in thee. Rejoice! Christ has made a way home. Christ has made for peace with God. Rejoice! Christ is peace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's roughly how we're going to look at it, those two parts. Christ is peace between people, and Christ is peace between people and God. That's what we'll look at, but let me first read the passage. in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul first lays out for us how Christ is peace between people. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Jesus is peace, peace personified. He's not only a good teacher about peace, telling us how to get it. He's not just a guide towards peace telling us where to go to find it. He himself is peace. Where to get peace? Come to Jesus. Where is where is it? How is it found? Where is it located? It's in Jesus, in the realm of being in Christ, something we've talked about before in this in this book. And he's not just peace as in no conflict or peace as in grudging reluctant tolerance. Biblical peace is different than that. Biblical peace is a relational, positive, harmonious well-being. It's not just not the negative. It is also yes to the positive. Peace in the biblical sense, the peace that Jesus is, is a relational connectedness that is harmonious, that has affection in it. And so now right away I have to qualify the statement that Christ is peace between people. I mean, we were just talking about how there's a vast lack of peace in the world. How can you say that Christ is peace between people if you look around at all? Well, I need to qualify that, or rather let Paul qualify it. The very next phrase in verse 14 is important. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. Now chapter 1 Verse 10, if you remember back when we talked about that, we saw in chapter 1, verse 10 that a time is coming. There's a time coming when peace shall reign over all the earth universally. The rebellion against the Lord will be put down, evil will be judged, and righteousness and justice and peace in every way everywhere will reign Christ will at that point be peace universally as he brings all the creation to heal underneath his authority that time is coming but it isn't now obviously now Christ is peace between particular people or more accurately he is peace among a particular people among a group He's not peace everywhere for everybody. Follow this. He has taken two widely divergent groups. Two groups, in this case the Jews and the Gentiles. Groups that used to hate each other. Talk a little more about that later. He's taken some from both of these two groups and he has brought them together and he has formed one entirely different new group. The end of verse 15 picks up on this again. He has taken two men, the Jew and the Gentile in this case, and has miraculously worked so that in himself, picture a new man here underneath of the head, Christ, in himself he has made one new humanity. Only in that realm, in Christ, is he peace there. He has worked miraculously so that one plus one equals one. That's what he's done. There's a new humanity, and only there is he peace. Like he's taken from some red Legos over here and some yellow Legos over here and he's built a new orange man underneath of himself. It's different than the two. That's what he's done. And if you want peace in the world today, you've got to come to this new man. You've got to come under the headship of Christ because only there is he peace. In fact... I have to tell you that if you have not yet given your life to Christ by surrendering control to Him in your heart, if you haven't yet done that, then all that we're going to be saying about peace is actually not reality for you. It's possibility, but it's not reality. Reality for you is only alienation and separation and discord to greater or lesser degrees in different ways according to who you are but that's reality for you and I trust me I do not gloat over that for you I'm not proud to tell you that or something I'm saddened for you I have been there and I have lived that and it is not fun I'm sad for you I plead with you come to peace there's only one place to find it in this new man under Christ's authority Come. The new man is a third party in the world. From the perspective of the Jews, there were two groups, Jews and non-Jews. In reality, though, there are three groups, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church. There is a third new man on the block. Now, some of us may want to discuss what all that means for certain theological systems. And some of us may want to discuss how that interacts with other particular Bible passages. We can do that some other time. What's important to understand right now is to see that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews to get access to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to get access to that salvation and the Jewish Messiah. They didn't have to become one. They didn't have to change and become the other. Both changed, and there was a new man created. And that was a remarkable thing. As we heard last week, Jason unpacked this more last week, these two groups hated each other. They weren't just like not really talking to one another. Great animosity and hostility characterized the relationship. There was a high barrier, a wall between the two of them, and you couldn't just say to them. Jesus couldn't just walk up to them and say, hey, why don't one of you guys, one of you guys come over here and just be friends? Can't you just get along? Couldn't say that because they would have said, no, we cannot get along. There is a real reason we can't get along. There's a barrier between us, a real one. It's insurmountable. It would take a miracle to overcome this. We can't just look beyond that and skip it. So how did Jesus take people from these two groups and join them together? How did he do that? Second half of verse 14 and on into 15. He has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law, commandments, and ordinances. Christ can be peace in this one new man. He can create this one new man in the first place because he dealt with the issue. He didn't just try to smooth it over and ignore it. He dealt with the issue. For these two groups, the issue between them was the law, and so Christ dealt with the law. Briefly, what are we talking about when we say the law? The law the law of commandments and ordinances. Think back to the Old Testament. From the time of Moses, the ethnic people of Israel had been in a unique relationship with the one and only God of all the creation. Through Moses, he had given to them a law and a covenant that was attached to that law. And this law was full of all kinds of regulations and rules and stipulations that governed and mandated all of life. All of their social relationships, all of their economic relationships, all of their worship. It dictated to them how they were to interact with one another, with outsiders, and with God. It laid it all out. And the Gentiles didn't follow any of that. In fact, the Gentiles did many of the things that were expressly forbidden in the law. Many of the Gentiles didn't even know about the law. They were so far away. And so from the Jews' perspective, they were reprehensible. They were repulsive. They were far off. And the Gentiles, being astute, picked up on that. And so they pushed back against the Jews, and alienation grew. That was reality between the two of them. How are they going to deal with that? Well, there's been a lot written about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the Law of Moses and the Law of Christ. There's a lot to talk about there. Suffice it to say right here, what we need to get is what's in verse 14 and 15, Christ in His flesh. That is, Christ at the cross rendered the Old Covenant of Moses and its law. He rendered it obsolete. He rendered it null and void. He rendered it... Inoperative and non-binding for faith and practice. How did he do that? Well, first, he fulfilled it. And as he fulfilled it, he closed the door on that system, closed the books, if you will, and he opened up a door, he inaugurated, he ushered in a new covenant in his blood at the cross. So now there need not be two camps of one who has the law and keeps it and one who doesn't have the law and doesn't keep it. It doesn't even matter anymore. He tore down the barrier between them by abolishing the question in the first place. He's brought in a new covenant. And in this new covenant and in this new law, Jews and Gentiles both have the same access to the same Messiah in the same way. Faith in the one who died on the cross. He's brought them together by abolishing the law. And there's a lot of interesting theology to talk about and think about with that. But I have to admit that right now, it is quite likely that a number of 21st century Utahns are going to say, or are thinking, uh, so what? I mean, Steve, if I was a first century person, perhaps, or if I even knew any Jewish people, perhaps this might be important. And as interesting as it might be to talk about the theology of all this, what is the big deal? I'm having a hard time seeing the relevance of this. That's a fair question. Here's the relevance for you today. Notice at the end of verse 15 what Christ's final goal is. He didn't abolish the law so as to abolish the law, as if abolishing the law was the point. It's not the point. The point, the goal, is to make one new man, and so to make peace Between these two groups, the issue was the law, so he dealt with the law. He's trying to make, Christ is trying to make a new man in which he will be peace. A particular people in which he would be among them and in them and would be peace in their relationships. So there would no longer be Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all would be one in Christ. That's what he's after. Black and white, rich and poor. Educated and not, Calvinist and Arminian, dispensational and reformed, charismatic and cessationist, united, one, locked together in Christ, in this one new man, despite all of our real differences, locked together, united on the central issue, so that Christ and we can be living proof that the truth of the central part of the gospel, that's what he's after. His goal was to make a new man of peace so as to bless you by returning to you something you were made for, community, to be sure, but also so as to show himself to be a marvelous peacemaker who takes peoples who are widely divergent from one another, peoples who might even hate one another, and bringing them together and making peace between them. To create a body in which relational harmony and affectionate love exists despite all their differences. Christ the head is after a body that is dominantly characterized by loving, tender, affectionate care for one another that the world may know that the father sent him, that the world may know the central truth of our gospel message. That's what he's after one new man of peace. How are we doing at that? How are we doing at eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? It's going to come up very quickly in chapter 4. And that call, that command, that exhortation in chapter 4 is rooted right here in the reality of chapter 2. As soon as Paul turns his mind, as soon as he shifts gears from the being to the doing, the first thought he has, verses 2 and 3, are about this kind of loving, peaceful community. It's the first thing. Switches gears and he talks about worthy walking and peace in the community of God comes up. So how are we doing at that? How are you doing at that? people would have looked at the first century church and said, man, those people are supposed to hate each other. But look, would you look at how they live together in harmony and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's verses 2 and 3. Wow, that is unusual. What is going on over there? Do people look at you and have that same reaction? Man, she has some pretty clear theological positions. And that other guy clearly disagrees with her. But do you see how they live with one another and fellowship with one another in patience and in love, eager to maintain their unity? Wow, that is interesting. Or... Man, that remark was totally out of line. I can't believe he said that. But did you see how that other guy responded to that in love and in patience and humility, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? That is unusual. What's going on there? Is our church body like that? Is your marriage like that? Is your home characterized by biblical peace? Christ is peace between people. He is peace in this one new man, and we are meant to see this reality and then be eager to maintain it, not eager to work against it and try to tear it apart. I tell you, this is tough for me. I am an opinionated guy. I've got a lot of ideas about stuff. And what do you know, not everybody agrees with me. And that's hard for me, because they should. (laughs) But I'm trying to learn this. And if you look at yourself, and this kind of peace does not adequately describe you in the church or you in your marriage or you in your your school classroom or you wherever you go there are four things you need to do right now first stop blaming others period second confess your own sin to others and to the lord Third, and this is probably the most critical one here, third, do what we've been talking about, fight. Not with each other. Fight for vision. Pick up Ephesians and read it and fight to see it. To see all the great work of God done on your behalf we've been talking about for the last couple of months. Hold up the offenses of others and others commit real offenses. That's true. Hold up the offenses of others. Hold up your own offenses right next to them and in front of them and over them and around them. Hold up the great work of the Christ of peace done on your behalf. And then fourth, deliberately, openly, get together with other people who are doing the same and fight with them for this kind of vision. You can't do this alone. It's a community of peace. It's a community of peace. It means to renew your mind and your heart, to give you power to look on life with a different perspective that can say, I can be content in all circumstances. I have Christ a life that can embrace other people and fellowship with them and bear with them and lovingly correct them if need be, but can often let love cover over a multitude of sins. Christ has miraculously worked to make one new man out of two and one new man out of millions. And in that one new man, he aims to be peace. He wants peace in the church. Christ is peace between people. So the Lord has worked to bring his human creation back together by making one new man, the new humanity in Christ. Reversing the rupture that's happened between people at the fall. He's knitting us back together bit by bit. Glorious work. But that's not really the half of it. Verses 14 and 15 are teaching that Christ is peace between people, but verses 16, 17, and 18 are teaching that Christ is peace between people and God. Let me say that again. Christ is peace between people and God. Verse 15, Christ abolished the law that he might create. You see that there in the text. That he might create that one new man, that new humanity. That's his first purpose there. But there's another second purpose Verse 16 begins with another might. He abolished the law because it was a barrier between people, and he abolished the law, verse 16, that he might reconcile us both. Those both that have been made into that one new body, that he might reconcile us both to God, not through the law. The law could not accomplish that, but through the cross. The cross killed Jesus. And as it killed Jesus, it also killed the hostility that existed between God and people. Those people who were in Jesus. Hostility between people and God was the norm. The Bible says it everywhere. All of us from birth, each one of us has gone his or her own way. There is no one who seeks God in the right way. There is no one who seeks God. No, not one. Chapter 2 of this book spells out how we all once were dead in sin, walking after our own evil desires, walking after the way of the world, walking even after Satan, not walking after God. We had set ourselves dead against Him. And so God also set Himself dead against us, and we were by nature objects of wrath. Hostility reigned between the two, between God and people. And the law was never meant to and was never capable of, in itself, eliminating that hostility. Rather, the law was constantly pointing out the problem and constantly pointing ahead to the final, full solution to the problem. Now those who had the law could, by faith, look at how the law was testifying to the coming solution, testifying through things like shadows, Use that metaphorically. And patterns and types. It's illustrating things. It's pointing out things like the sacrifice of the Lamb is pointing ahead to the sacrifice of the Lamb. It's a shadow of what was to come. And those who had that law could express faith in what was coming and so be saved. But it was faith in what was coming. The whole covenant of the law was only temporary. Temporary. The permanent reality was always coming. And when the permanent comes, it will eliminate, it will abolish, it will shut the door on the preliminary. He was always coming and finally He came. He came and He went to the cross and He yielded up His body to be broken, His blood to be shed, that He might become the object of God's wrath so that He might bring many sons and daughters to God. Verse 18, For through Him and through Him alone, in one unity of the Spirit, we both, We all who have come to Him, we have access to God. The barrier between people, but more than that, the barrier between people and God has been torn down. And through His apostles, He came to Ephesus, and He came to Rome, and He came to India, and He came to Africa, and He preached that gospel to the Gentiles far off and to the Jews with the inside track. He preached that Gospel through the Apostles, and He gathered in believers, and He created this one new man and reconciled them to God. That He did, and that He still does, through us, through us. Christ still preaches, through His ministers and through His church. Christ preaches to you today, right now. Be reconciled to God. Come to peace in this new man. I plead with you. Hostility can be torn down. Peace can be found, but only one way, only in one place, under the headship of the Lord Jesus, God eternal, who came to earth and took on a body. It is possible. It is here, but it is only here. Come and find that. I plead with you. But please, Everybody here, whether you're still considering these things or whether you've already come to Christ in humble faith, either way, please notice this carefully. Peace is good, but it is not the end goal. In fact, I don't think peace itself is ever the end goal. Consider two nations who are at war. And one day they decide to settle up and they write, a, write and sign a peace accord. Why did they do that? I doubt that it was because they became convicted of their sin and decided to repent and make things right. Probably not because of that. Rather, the two countries did a little pro-con evaluation and decided that probably this war is destroying our economy, destroying our cities, killing our people, ruining our international standing, and if we get peace going that stuff might all get reversed. So they do a little evaluation, and they realize that economically and politically and physically, they can come out ahead in peace. War used to look attractive. Things have changed now, and peace looks more attractive. So let's sign a peace accord. Peace itself is not the end goal. It's what peace gets that's the end goal. It's the same way with peace with with God. Why did and does Christ preach this message far and wide in verse 17 for verse 18 begins with a for there's a reason coming up there for through Christ we have access to the Father think about that peace between people and God is good because peace between people and God gets people God it gets us God back when you get reconciled to God verse 16 when you get peace with God from verse 17 what you get is God verse 18 Do you follow that that's ultimately what makes the gospel good news in the gospel mechanics are laid out about how peace can come to us and therefore we can get God back you can cry out i am my beloved's and he is mine to use that verse you can cry that out because of what the gospel is it makes peace so you can have him and that should lead to rejoicing in your heart glory think about this in the garden of genesis 3 god walked with man and fellowship with him with him intimately in the cool of the garden they walked together and everything was very good And then the world was wrecked by sin. And separation and alienation set in due to our rebellion. But in Christ, the one with the voice like mighty rushing the waters, the one who spoke all of the creation into existence, the one on whom Moses could not look, the one who hid himself in the holy of holies, the one who struck down Uzzah for touching the ark, the one before whom Isaiah fell as dead when he heard, Holy, Holy, Holy That one, known only as the name, because he couldn't call his name out. He had to give him another name. That one has come near to you in Christ. The curtain has been torn. The veil is opened. You have access to the very throne room of God. And you can behold His beauty. You can look at Him, gaze at Him, and satisfy your soul with His very presence. And not just with His gifts, His gifts are good and very good. It is a good thing that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank God for that. Praise Him for His generous gifts. But the greatest gift, the greatest blessing is Him, Himself. At the center of our glorious inheritance is God in Christ, mediated to us now by the Holy Spirit working in us. Now we see him dimly. Then we shall see him face to face. And eternity will be filled with this seeing and delighting. The seeing and delighting in God himself, the satisfaction of ourselves, of our souls. Oh God, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find their home in thee. Hallelujah. Christ has made a way home. He has done that. Preach this message far and wide. Peace with God is available in Christ. God is available in Christ. Preach it in season and out of season, and Christ will preach through you as you preach to all those around you. Preach it, but I plead with you. Preach it not just to your neighbors, but preach it to yourself. Preach it to yourself perhaps more than you preach it to your neighbors. We, you and I, still need to hear this message because fundamentally our sin is connected to forgetting it or ignoring it. Sometimes in a split second or sometimes over a longer period of premeditation and temptation, either way, here's how sin works in you if you're a Christian. Sin observes your particular fallenness. Your fallenness is, on the one hand, common to all of us, just like the rest of us. But on the other hand, it's a little unique, depending on who you are, what you like, what your personal history has been, what your personality is. You're a little different, and you're a little like the rest of us. And sin looks at you, and it sizes you up. And it sidles up to you, and it makes an offer. It's really an offer. We call it temptation, but because you're no longer a slave to sin, sin is making an offer to you a deal. It's throwing something out there, a proposition. Boy, sin says. Boy, did you notice how your husband just treated you so rudely? Whew. I'm surprised that you'd put up with that. Most women wouldn't. You know, if he's not going to care for you, maybe you should. Somebody has to. Somebody has to put a stop to that rude, insensitive behavior. Defend yourself. Things will go better for you. Don't forgive him. He'll walk all over you and things will just get worse. What are you thinking? Don't do that. Now, you deserve better than this, and the only way you're going to get it is if you stand up, put him in his place, and, depending on who you are, give him the cold shoulder, or yell back at him, or avoid him, or... Rip him up one side and down the other, or go to your friends and rip him up one side and down the other. Whatever your particular way is, that's what you should do. Come on! Action here! Take care of yourself here. Fix this! Now, change all of the details to fit your particular situation, but that's how sin works. In a split second, or over a period of longer time and thought. Sin talks to you like that. It woos you by appealing to half-truths, sinful desires of your fallen nature. It holds out hope to you that the path of sin will satisfy, will be better for you, will improve your life in some way. Let's stick with that example. Should the husband have spoken rudely to the wife or whatever he did? No, of course not. That was sin that was sin that's clear however something else happened taking a stance of demanding rights and justifying sinful activity so as to correct the situation and take care of herself is also all wrong self sits at the center of that proposed reaction Do you see that there I have been crossed I have been hurt I have been sinned against and that cannot go on because I am me. How dare that happen to me? Somebody's got to put a stop to this and I think I'm a pretty good candidate for it. Do you see self at the center of that there? Sinful attitude and response through and through. Instead of acting on that temptation to take care of herself, here's what she should do. She should stop right there and preach the gospel to herself. Now, I don't mean the bare mechanics of the gospel message you shouldn't stop and say, Heaven is a free gift, that is not earned or deserved. Man is a sinner and cannot save himself, or, or whatever your particular system is. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is that she should preach to herself, remind herself, command herself to give heed to, the good news of verse 18 through Christ I have God I have God and just look at him he is magnificent he chose me before the foundation of the world he forgave me He sealed me with His Holy Spirit bringing heaven down to me here right now, a little taste of it at least. He's done all this so that I can experience Him in part now and so that I can experience Him in fullness later. Oh, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of His love for me. Who can separate me from the love of Christ? What can separate me from the love of Christ? Nothing. No one. And not my rude husband either. He can't. I can be content in the midst of this rudeness because I have all that I really need. I have God in Christ. I am fabulously wealthy. Look at Him. And you do just that. You look at Him. And you let Him satisfy your soul. You let Him make you into that well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Even in the sun-parched land where there is no rain... You catch that imagery from Isaiah you let him satisfy you on the inside and you become like a well watered garden go ahead throw as much dry dirt on that as you want shut the rain off from the heavens it doesn't matter because there's a spring there and the waters of that spring never fail the waters keep coming up and keep coming up despite rudeness getting heaped on despite whatever gets heaped on the waters never fail That's what God means for you. He wants that to happen. Now with that mindset, she can then move to address her husband's sin in whatever way is appropriate. Talking to him in humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with him in love, eager to maintain their unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. She can talk to him however appropriate. Maybe the husband's offense is a little worse than just a rude comment. Maybe she needs to get more people involved, like the church perhaps, maybe even the police. Maybe it was that serious. That's okay. She can do that because she's not acting in vindictiveness anymore. Self is not at the center of this. Demanding self's own rights is no longer at the center, so she's free to act as is appropriate, as is necessary. She's not centered on herself anymore. Do you see how that works? Preach the gospel to yourself moment by moment. You've got to do more than see that how that works, so you've got to actually do it. You've got to take every thought captive at the moment and say, hold on there, I'm going to put over that the good news of verse 18. I'm going to put over that all of Ephesians 1 and 2. I'm going to let that stuff change me on the inside how I think. And then what will happen is i walk differently. transforms your mind and produces worthy walking. That's the primary reason that Paul has told us that Christ is peace between people and Christ is peace between people and God so that our hearts would rejoice that we have Him and that we can have people back. That hearts would rejoice, so that we would be renewed on the inside, and so that we would walk in a worthy manner of peace.
0: Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.